Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Okay, good evening everyone. As Chalk mentioned, my name is Cornell, husband to the lovely Nanya, sitting over there. Do you want to raise your hand, my love? Yes. I am a lucky man. Um... So yeah, um, recently I, I spoke to a friend of mine who's, who's not a Christian and who doesn't go to church but grew up in church. And I asked him this question. I asked him, well, what is it that made you make that decision? What is it that made you leave church? I always find what people believe and what they think about, about, especially about God, very, very interesting. And he said to me, you know, I went to church. And I listened to the sermons and what the preacher was saying, etc. But it felt to me that all of it was kind of based around rules and regulations around how I should live my life and what I can and what I cannot do. And I registered a lot of guilt. That's what he said. He felt that there was a lot of guilt kind of attached to that. And he just decided it's not for him. And it wasn't very attractive to him. So he stopped going to church. And it's not the first time that I've heard someone say that uh, over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to speak to a few people who have kind of said a similar thing. And um, I find that quite sad because, uh, yes, Christianity does give us a framework for what is right and what is wrong. But that's not where the gospel ends. That's where the gospel starts. And I find that oftentimes what the gospel then actually says about that problem, people either don't understand or they don't even know about. So tonight we're just going to talk about that. What does the gospel say and what does it mean for us? Um, and I love what John Lennox says about the gospel. So John Lennox is an Oxford mathematician, a very smart guy and a legend. Me and Jock had the privilege of shaking his hand the other night. I almost didn't wash it for like a week. I felt so special. But he's, a, he's like an intellectual, a mathematician. And he says the reason why he believes the gospel is because it works. And I want to agree with him. The gospel works because it's the truth, and it sustainably works. And you can look, since it's been preached, generation, doesn't matter, country, culture, it works. Every time it works, and it does what it says it's going to do. And before we get to what it does, we've got to define the problem that it solves. So by training, I'm an engineer, and I discovered this amazing law of the universe when I was doing engineering. So we would like do these projects and we would create electronic solutions and stuff. And then we would get it to a point where it's working and it would work properly and do exactly what it needed to do. But somehow the next day when it came time to actually show it to our professors between the previous night and then it had broken. And I don't know how it happened, but it happened a few times. Leanne is shaking her head. The engineers around here can probably testify to that, right? But... The point is that that's something we observe in our world, is that things don't seem to get better when we leave them alone. Things seem to get worse, and it requires effort and energy that we need to expend on it to either maintain it to stay the same or to eventually get better. And the Bible explains this concept in Romans 8, verse 20. For, crea- for the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So what the scripture says is that creation tends towards decay. It tends to get worse. And just under 1,800 years after this was written, science confirmed that in in the law of thermodynamics or the second law of thermodynamics, that basically says any system increases in entropy. Entropy can never go down. Now, that's just fancy words for saying everything tends to chaos. Everything tends to disorder. So we experience that in the world. We live in a world where things go to decay. But what about us? Well, another thing I often hear people who don't believe in God say is they ask this question. If God is a good God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And I don't want to go too deep into that tonight. I preached on it a few weeks ago, so you're welcome if you want to deep dive into that to go listen to that sermon. But what I want us to register or realize is just that people look at the world around them and they see things which they register as unjust. And they go, well, why is this happening? It seems to me that something is not right. And then they want an explanation for for that from an authority or ultimately from God. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time in those situations, the very source of the perpetration or the perpetrators are us, are humans. We're the ones who cause harm and pain and suffering and oppression and broken relationships and all that stuff in the world. So it's not just that we see that our world tends to decay and that there's something wrong in nature, but there seems to be something wrong with us. And the Bible has a very robust description of what that is exactly, and it's just taken together in the concept of sin or the sinful nature. And the direct translation for the word sin just means to miss the mark. So the idea is that you have an objective and you're aiming at it and you go for it and you fail and you miss the mark, okay? But what is the mark that you're aiming at? Well, let's go to Matthew 22 where um, Jesus is approached by this lawyer who's like a, a professional guy in the moral law given to God by men. So he knows his stuff. But he asks Jesus this question, teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, if I want to make sure that in life I do not miss the mark, what is the one thing that I should do? And Jesus answers him. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So from my understanding, what Jesus is saying is missing the mark or sinning is simply one of two things. It's failing to love the Lord your God well and first, and failing to love your neighbor as yourself. And interestingly, in this verse, he implies that the two are connected. That's why when you read the rest of the Bible, sometimes when people sin against each other, it's actually counted as sinning against God, um, which is just an interesting side note to look out for. Um, But it goes further than this. The Bible says not only is sin something which we do, So it's not just an action, but it seems to be a part of who we are. Romans 3 from verse 9 to 12. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made it the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. There was a a professor at Stanford University called Philip Zimbardo. 
and he was a, a professor of psychology and he ran this experiment, like a social experiment. He got a group of students to sign up and brought them to the university in a simulation where they simulated a prison in the basement of Stanford University and he got guards to act as if they're prison guards. And the idea was that they would treat them exactly like prisoners get treated in jail and they would see what the effect was on their behavior. So they went to their houses and they arrested them, brought them in and they did all of this dehumanizing stuff that prisoners go through in prison. That simulation was supposed to run for two weeks. They had to stop it after six days because of the harassment that was taking place among the students. And afterwards, Professor Zimbardo came to this conclusion. He said, through this experiment, some of these students suffered. We have to admit that because these were not bad people. These were students at one of America's most prestigious universities. But he came to this conclusion. He said, when it comes to evil in the world, it's not always the bad apples that do the evil deeds, but rather the good apples in bad barrels. In other words, any person put under the wrong circumstances have the, have the potential or even the probability to do evil. And that's the problem that the Bible presents us with. Not just that we do bad things, but that after the fall of mankind, we are sinners. And it, it leaves us with a bit of a problem. Because now if you think, if you get to the end of your life, and you've got to look back and measure how well you lived your life, or you've got to kind of define whether I lived a good life or not. According to Professor Zimbardo's um, experiment, the way that we measure ourselves or the deeds that we, di that we did might only be applicable because of the circumstances we found ourselves in. If we had been under different circumstances, we might have um, acted in a different way. So how do we know that we lived a good life? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. It, um, it, it introduces it under the concept of justification. And what justification is, is the, the, the meaning of the word directly is showing something to be right or reasonable. And I believe that it's kind of one of the core aspirations of any person to wonder at the end of your life, if you had to appear before God and you had to give account of your life, all of us would want him to say, shop, you know, you lived a right and a reasonable life. You lived a life that was good and I give you my acceptance. Now, what the Bible tells us is that Yes, we all have that need for justification to know that we lived in a right way. But our sinful nature tends to get us to look for that sometimes in places other than God. And that manifests usually in one of two ways. The first way is we look for that justification from something else. We can call it a functional savior. We look for, at something else to save us or to give us that validation that we require. And that can be a whole myriad of different things. It could be a job or fame or your family or your children or your wife, whatever, whatever it is. And that's going to work out one of two ways for us. Either we're going to pursue this thing and along the way we're going to fail. So, for example, if someone has got a career and they think that a career is the one thing in life which is going to give them purpose and meaning or a business and they pursue this thing and the stock market crashes or something and this business fails, that devastates people. 
I mean, we see that. We see people getting crushed under that, even driven to the point of suicide because they cannot handle the failure. Or on the other side, you could succeed and your business could do great or you could flourish as an actor or as something that gets you recognition in a worldly sense. But that isn't a guarantee for validation or fulfillment either. Jim Carrey, who is a very famous and successful and rich comedian, is quoted as saying, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. And my wife told me today is also depressed, which just shows us that that in itself can't satisfy us. The other way in which it manifests is when we try and justify ourselves. So through our own actions or through our own deeds, we try and earn that justification. Now, for me, this is kind of the main thing that separates Christianity from other world religions. In every other religion, you have to earn the favor of the deity or of God. So the more good you do, the better things will come to you. Kind of like karma. The more good I do, the better, the more good things will come to me. Or in Islam, like the scales of justice, where as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll be okay and you'll make it in to heaven. But Christianity is not like that at all. It actually says the opposite. And this is something I never knew when growing up. But Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's God's sight. And Paul, who was probably one of the most famous Christians, who was super committed to the gospel, spread it throughout major parts of Europe and Asia, says this in Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he lists like his credentials, you know. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying here is that he had ticked all of the boxes in terms of doing the right things according to God's law. But he counts all of that stuff as rubbish. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And that is the beauty of the gospel. When I grew up, I always thought that because it's, uh, John said it, but because I'm a sinner, I cannot have a relationship with God. I need to fix myself and then I will be acceptable to God. But that is not what the gospel says. The gospel says Jesus came down to earth, lived among us, Died on the cross to forgive our sins, yes, but more than that, to enable us to have a living relationship with God. And because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, God puts his stamp of approval on us even before we've done anything right. Titus 3 verse 3 to 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What the Bible tells us is that God saves us not because we're good, but because we're bad, <laughs> and we need it. And um, that's the difference with having God as Savior, is God says that he will, when we fail, if we fail, He will forgive us and He'll raise us up again. And if we succeed, He'll fulfill us, even the deepest desires in our hearts. And when that relationship with Him starts, He begins to form us into who He made us to be in the first place. I want to share a story with you from my life about how I've experienced relationship with with God. So I also grew up, like John, in a a Christian home. And um, growing up, I, I went to church on Sundays with my parents and I read my Bible every night, and I said a prayer, which was kind of always a rhyme, and focused a lot about, please protect me, Lord. Um, but the older I got, the more I realized that, you know, for me it was also, Christianity felt like a set of rules and a set of regulations that kind of determined my, or determined what I can and what I cannot do. And I didn't think that's where life is. So I eventually got bored of church, I left church, um, I stopped praying and I stopped reading my Bible. And all this time I knew God was real, but I just kind of, I was really afraid that one day when he comes back, he will judge me because I knew I didn't make his standard, but I didn't really know what to do about it at all. Then I went to university. And um, before university, I went on a first year's camp. And at, a, at that first year's camp, I met people who talked differently about their relationship with God. At first, like, it was kind of like tonight with people raising their hands and stuff, and I thought it was extremely weird that, like, you know, I felt very out of my comfort zone to start with. But when these people spoke about God, um, they, they had something different that, that they were alluding to. And it wasn't just that God was there kind of far away imposing rules and regulations on them, but it was like they had a relationship with Him, like He understood them, like He actually cared about their situations and their studies and their relationships and whatever it could be. And like he spoke to them, and I didn't fully understand that, but those guys became my friends who I met on the camp. And at university, they invited me to church and then to a seminar one night. And at that seminar, the pastor gave an opportunity to respond to entering into a relationship with God. And I remember that night so well. I was sitting there, and I was so scared. I, I like, literally wanted to run out of that Whole. I don't really know why, but I just remember that night very clearly God saying, or saying to me and feeling him say to me that he's calling me into a relationship with him and that that night, that night I had to make a decision. And I remember saying to him, God, I don't completely know what I'm doing. I, don't, I just know this is going to have consequences, but I want to do that. I want to know you. And I responded that night to that and that night my life changed. Immediately I had the power to stop doing a lot of the bad things I had been doing. Um, I started hearing God's voice for the first time in my life on a regular basis and kind of understanding what His will was for my life, but more than that, um, that He loved me and that He cared about me. And about halfway through my first year at university, something happened. I had now come to this place where I'd committed my life to Him and I'd burnt all my bridges, trust me, I was quite radical when (laughs) I just became a Christian. I'd burned all my bridges and things were going back. My friends thought I was completely crazy. And um, I became very afraid that 
at that point where of justification, at the, at the ultimate judgment one day, that God would not accept me. That I would do something in life that would be so bad that God would not be able to accept me one day and that he would have to reject me and that I would go to hell. And it's, I can't really explain it, but it basically started as thoughts and thoughts eventually became anxiety. And I started getting very anxious and then I started having panic attacks on a regular basis. I would like sit in my room and have a panic attack and I wouldn't know what to do with the emotions. It would just be completely overwhelming and I would get out and bolt out of my room and my roommate thought I was absolutely insane and he would run after me like, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I couldn't even explain it to him but I just, I live in quite a high building in Stellenbosch and I just remember um, thinking to myself like, it might even be better for me to jump off of this building because I don't know how to, how to deal with these emotions. And I tried like a lot of things to, to get free from that. I remember um, I was extremely stubborn. My mom wanted me to like take pills and stuff, but I was like, no, I'm a Christian. I don't need medication, whatever. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to drink any pills. Um, but I really tried through like time and time again to kind of think myself out of it and to get it to get, get better but nothing seemed to work I remember one day going to like lunch with my dad at Spur and that day I was like feeling really down so I was just like I'm just gonna eat I'm just gonna go in there and order the biggest burger I can find and a double thick milkshake and that's gonna make it better and I remember that day so well I ate that burger and it tasted like nothing and I started going into like quite a deep depression by the end of my first year. And my, my parents were worried about me. My friends were worried about me. I literally thought I was going crazy because I was anxious all the time. And at the end of my first year, me, uh, we went on, a, on an outreach program known as Staninsta, where you go to like a beach town and um, you do youth programs with the youth there. And on that outreach, there was a lady who did deliverance ministry. And what that basically is, is you trust God to come free from things that are holding you back. So I was like, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I went up to her and I'm like, I told her my situation. and told her what I was going through and asked her, asked her if we can pray together. And we set, out, we set out some time and we prayed together. And during that session, God prompted her um, to say something to me. And he showed me a situation when I was in high school. One day when my mom came and fished me from school, we went to the shop that she owned, and she got out of the car and went outside. And while she, when she was inside for a while, the car locked inside. And I tried to get out of the car, and it couldn't open. And I completely freaked out. I started screaming and screaming. And I was about to, like, kick out the window of the car when, um, when she heard, and she opened the car, and I got out. And that was very strange for me because I'd never been claustrophobic or anything like that. But after that point, I started having like dreams and I would wake up in the middle of the night um, and I would have to get out of whatever I was in. So if I was I sl like slept over at a friend's house a few times and I would get up and I would wake up the entire house, they would have to unlock the door because I need to get out of the house. If it was a room, I would kick down the door. I couldn't sleep in a tent at all. I was guaranteed to get up in the middle of the night and to like be grasping for the door. My brother actually punched me one night when I did that. It worked because I couldn't remember anything about it the next day. But I couldn't ride um, in an elevator at all. I struggled in planes. And all this time I was like, I'd never been claustrophobic before that. And I was completely powerless to that, um, to that anxiety. 
And God just showed me that day, that, that day when I was in the car, that's when anxiety entered into my life. And it's actually funny because God also sometimes uses the very things that the devil tries to um, use to steal from our lives to help us. And um, one, one example of that is also my friends and me used to smoke weed at school. And every time I smoked weed, I also got a panic attack. So I couldn't do it at all. They, they actually didn't want me like with them because I would just freak out every time. So I'm thankful at least that it kept me off the grass. But God just showed me that day that um, that, that was the day when, when anxiety entered into my life. And I could bring it before him that day and ask him to set me free from it. And it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like immediately I was perfectly fine and no more anxiety and whatever. But I remember that year going down to the beach and on New Year's, on New Year's evening, there was a guy we met there with a guitar who we didn't know and we started singing some songs. And we sang the one song which we sang before the service now where the chorus goes, under the shadow of your wings, I will find my strength under the shadow of your wings. And I just remember standing there singing and for the first time in literally months just having complete peace like not feeling any anxiety at all and just knowing that God was covering me with protection and that it was going to be okay. And then in my second year, my um, anxiety went down quite a bit. But at the end of my second year, me and two friends decided to go backpacking in Africa. So we flew up to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. We went over to Zanzibar for a few days and then took three trains and a bus back down to Johannesburg. And when we landed in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, the anxiety was back just in a different form. Because I realized, well, firstly, we landed and things really didn't go according to our plans. We also didn't know if we've got enough money to make it home. And we were outside of our budget within like the first hour of being there. And um, I just got really, really anxious again because I realized that there's so much that can go wrong. I... I I started having panic attacks. I probably slept like an hour the first night just because of anxiety. And um, went over to Zanzibar, emotional up and down. Then we got on the first train across um, Tanzania to Zambia. And on that train, I reached boiling point. I remember um, taking my, my malaria pill box of the pills I was drinking and reading the pamphlet on the inside. And in there it said, if you struggle from anxiety or depression, do not drink these pills because they can have long-lasting negative side effects on you, it said. And I was like, how did the doctor miss asking me this question? But I just reached like a boiling point. And um, I remember going on my knees in that train and just saying to God, like, God, I do not know how to handle these emotions. I've tried a lot of stuff and nothing is working. I don't know what to do anymore. And right there on that train, God came and set me free from anxiety and depression to the point where I've not struggled with it again to today. And, you know, that is a miracle. Actually, the other day, on the contrary, people come to me nowadays, and they, like, Elmerie came to me the other day, and she said, Cornel, jy is die rustigheid self, your peace itself. And I just go, you've got, like, no idea who I used to be. Um, but I also felt him say to me in that moment that he loves me enough to take me out of my comfort zone in Stellenbosch and put me on a train in the middle of Africa so that that stuff can surface and that we can deal with it because we're going somewhere in life and where we're going, I can't be struggling with that stuff. And um, that day I understood something brand new about the love of God. For the first time in my life, I understood that the love of God is not 
something that is far off and, and mushy and weird. It's something that's real and tangible and that we will experience. That the gospel is not something that is like a nice to know and maybe it'll get me into heaven. That it's something that transforms your life and sets you free. So I just I want the, the band to come up if you can and I want us all to just stand. So maybe maybe you're here tonight and you can you can relate to that. Maybe you know you say Cornell I've tried a lot of things in life and I've been around the block and I have tried many different things to find satisfaction or to find fulfillment, but nothing seems to work. And maybe tonight you realize that God has been tugging at your heart. Maybe you even realize that you're here, not by chance. I remember that night when I was standing in the auditorium, I felt very, very nervous. I realize now that it wasn't just nerves itself, but God was actually calling me into a relationship with Him. And tonight, if at all you know that God is tugging at your heart and He's asking you the question of will you come to Him? Not perfect. You can come just as you are. But are you willing to come to Him and have Him transform you? And secondly, maybe you're also here tonight and maybe you had a relationship with God or you have a relationship with God, but over the years it's grown a little bit cold. And you know that your love for God is not what it used to be. So I just want everyone to close your eyes. And if that's you, I just as a sign of responding to God, I want you to raise your hand. And it's not that you're responding to any, anybody. I mean, we cannot do anything for you. We, we're just people. But God, the Bible says God doesn't look at the outer. He looks at the heart and He knows what's going on in our hearts. And if you need to respond to that tonight, I just want, as a sign of surrender, you to raise your hand to God. And to say to Him that you need Him. And once you've raised your hand, you can, you can lower it again. So I'm just going to, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a prayer. And I want you to pray after me. I want, actually, I want us all to pray. But especially if you're responding tonight, um, I want you to pray this prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord, that you love me, that you know me. And that you brought me here tonight, God, to invite me into a relationship with you. God, I want to bring myself before you with all my sins and my mistakes. And I want to ask you, Jesus, to forgive me and to make me new and to come into my life and to change me, Father so that I can know you. That like Paul says, I can know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I want to ask you, Father, that you will teach me your ways, that you will show me your love, and that I may know you, God.
from now unto eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg. I'm the one who gave you.